Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, before we get to Dr. Walter Brueggemann, let me tell you about what I'm doing May 2nd through May 5th. It's the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. It's a great event for some rejuvenation, some encouragement, and some learning from some really smart people. Friends of the show like Pete Enns, Suzanne Stabile, I'll be there, Johnny Storm will be there, Fade Haygood will be there, and of course Mike Cope and many others will be there. So that's May 2nd through 5th at the Pepperdine University Bible Lectures in Malibu, California. Beaches and mountains are included. For more information about the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, click on the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Come to my live podcast. There'll be some good ones. Speaking of good ones, this podcast with Walter Brueggemann is, uh, it's, it's great. I love talking to this guy. Uh, sometimes uh, y- you got people who are super smart and they just, they're just going to talk and say their stuff because it's really brilliant. And I was completely prepared to do that because Walter Brueggemann definitely deserves that. But he was a great interview, listened, engaged, and uh, of course he had brilliant stuff to say. So... What I'm saying is, I can't believe it's been 200 plus episodes into this podcast before we had Walter Brueggemann on, but it was well worth the wait. So here we go. Well, friends, welcome back to the show. I am very honored today to be joined by Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Thank you so much, sir, for taking the time to talk with me. I'm glad to have a chance to talk with you. Thanks. I I have been reading your books for many years. I think the first one I read was probably in... Uh, grad school or um, an intro to Old Testament theology. And ever since then, I've been using your material. I've quoted you most of the time that I stole your stuff in sermons. I can't say every time, though, but I've used (laughs) you a lot. Well, there you go. (laughs) Can this count as like penance for me not always telling people that I stole your ideas? I figure it's in the public domain. So it's okay. Good. Good. Well, great. Well, your, uh, the commentary you did for interpretation for Genesis, I've probably used just about all of that. So I, again, I feel like I owe you a, a few months paycheck for writing my sermons for me. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> so when I'm assuming there's a lot of us who have ripped off your sermons. Have you ever found yourself hearing another sermon that someone else was delivering and going, I think I said that first? Well, once in a while, I I think I hear a few lines that sound familiar, yes. (laughs) Right. I I, I hope you hear that as a compliment to your work. Well, I do. You know, we preachers uh, are always uh, trying to find a fresh way to say things, and uh, if we are helped by each other, why, uh, that's a good thing. Well, you've definitely helped me a great deal. And so when your new book came out, I was excited to have an opportunity to talk with you. And then I found out that this book was based on the work of one of my favorite psychologists, a, a, a gentleman named Jonathan Haidt. And his work, I've, I loved, uh, he, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, which I just found to be brilliant. And then this book, in a lot of ways, builds on the work that he did in the book called The Righteous Mind. How long have you been familiar with, uh, with Haidt's work? Well, actually, uh, uh, that book, uh, of, of The Righteous Mind, is the only piece of his work with which I am familiar. And uh, uh, as you would guess, I was greatly instructed by that book. 
It's now my uh, here, here's one of the great things about this book is that you wrote it with your son who's a sociologist, and so there's this sociology slash theology interplay. And my father, his undergrad, like yours, is in psychology, or excuse me, sociology, and my dad is a psychologist. And so the the intersection of theology and the social sciences have always been interesting to me. And I'm assuming as the father of a sociologist, you guys have had these sort of interplay conversations between the two different disciplines for years. Am I correct? We, we do indeed, because I, I have a great uh, interest in sociology myself. So I was very glad that my uh, son took up that work. And so we've had uh, really good conversations and I've learned a great deal from him. Yeah. Your undergrad was in sociology? That's right? correct. It was. Did, yep. did you, were you thinking that would be a possible career for you at one point? Yes. When I was in uh, seminary in uh, St. Louis, uh, I took one graduate course at Washington University in sociology, and I was uh, sort of uh, thinking about going in that direction. Unfortunately, the course I took was a very bad course, and uh, I decided I couldn't do that. If I had had... Uh, a different access point uh, that might have turned out differently, but it didn't. What type of uh, sociology would you see yourself practicing or doing? Well, uh, I am not a bean counter, and uh, I, I wouldn't do uh, uh, statistical stuff, so I suppose uh, you would, what I would do would or uh, narrative sociology, I suppose, uh, which more or less is what my son John does, I think. Um, but I'm very interested in the uh, interplay of, uh, of uh, power and knowledge. Uh, so I, I guess uh, my, uh, my book, uh, Truth Speaks to Power, uh, represents the kind of interest I would have uh, and uh, that would be much informed by Karl Marx, uh, who saw so clearly uh, that our knowledge is filtered through our money, uh, and uh, uh, the interplay between the two is very tricky. And that's the sort of thing that interests me a great deal. Hmm. So you wrote this book with your son. When when did that idea first uh, develop? Were, were you guys reading this book together? Did you suggest it to him? He to you? How, how did well, we we uh, he and I have been talking about something like that for oh probably five or six years, and uh, finally I said to him, "I'm not getting any younger, uh, and if we're going to do this, uh, we got to get at it." And uh, I asked uh, John to. Uh, uh, suggest a, a, a grid or a table of contents uh, with which we could both work, and uh, so he did that, and then uh, we had some uh, more conversations, and then each of us uh, wrote our piece of it, and then subsequently we each uh, wrote a response uh, to the work that the other one had done, and I think uh, I think it worked uh, very well. Uh, because our uh, angles of vision are different enough uh, that we did have some some stuff that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, when I found out the subject matter for this book, I texted a psychologist friend of mine named Richard Beck, and I told him, because he, along with myself, 
big fans of Jonathan Haidt's work. And I said, yeah, this is uh, Brueggemann's new book. And he, he said, this is what you should ask him. Ask him how the Bible reflects each of the six moral foundations. And I said, that's basically what you did in the book. That's correct. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so I, I uh, you know, I, I took up the themes uh, that John had uh, suggested to me, and, and I just tried to uh, lay them out in terms of what I knew uh, from the, my long work in uh, in Old Testament, and uh, I th- I think that worked out pretty well. Obviously, this formulation of them uh, was fresh to me, but the the themes and the questions they posed were not new questions to me. I had been uh, walking around stuff for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well. Well, if someone has never read your work, and this is the first book of yours that they read, they will quickly realize that you take a very, I don't know if you, you'd be comfortable with this language, but a very prophetic stance against um, a, a lot of the American culture. And in this book, you do a lot of uh, pushback against you know, the issues that we, um, I, I say we as I'm an, I'm an American as well, uh, that we live in. Um, how do you feel about yourself being described as uh, someone who takes a prophetic stance or, or being a prophet against you know the American uh, ethos. Well, uh, I don't. I don't think anyone should uh, uh, grab at such an identity for oneself. Uh, but I understand uh, prophetic work uh, to be uh, uh, speech that interrupts uh, the common assumptions of dominant culture. Uh, and insofar as uh, uh, American uh, culture is a closed system of uh, wealth and power and control, uh, then I do think it is my vocation uh, as a textual interpreter uh, to be uh, saying things and interpreting texts that do not fit with that closed system, but in fact interrupt that closed system. And if that's what one understands by being prophetic, then I would guess uh, that in a sort of a general way, that's what I think I'm about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I believe that the closed system of uh, uh, scarcity, greed, anxiety, and violence, that's how I would describe our American political economic system, I believe it's a recipe for death, and uh, I, th- I think we can see the signs about how it is uh, destroying our shared humanness. And uh, uh, if if we are if we are to live responsibly uh, inside that system, uh, then we have to be advocates for something else, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's more or less what I try to do. Yeah, definitely. So, you you said that uh, it destroys our shared humanness. If someone didn't have an understanding of what that means, uh, how would you help them see the way that our current system, our, our closed system, as you call it, is destroying our shared humanity? Well, our, our shared humanity, uh, I would say, means uh, the practice of generous, hospitable neighborliness. I, I think that's how... A human community is meant to work. And obviously, uh, when we imagine uh, scarce resources uh, and uh, greedy means 
for getting my share and more than my share, uh, obviously all of that becomes an enemy of neighborliness. And I think that, uh, by and large, the, the uh, mood and the assumptions uh, of our uh, culture are uh, very mean-spirited, uh, and I think you can see that uh, around almost any of the, of the big public issues uh, that we face. Uh, and uh, in a, in a um, society that values commodity and wealth, those who do not have commodity and wealth and do not have the means to acquire them are simply left behind and excluded. And you cannot have a viable, sustainable society when you have large numbers of people who are excluded from access to the goodies of that society. So I, I think uh, that anti-neighborliness is uh, shot through uh, the dominant value systems uh, of our society. When you speak of the closed system, uh, you know the first of the six moral foundations is care versus harm, and I, I believe it's your son's section that he goes through a, a great deal of research speaking to uh, the discrepancy um, between the richest Americans, uh, how a lot of that is inherited, how the ability for people uh, who inherit wealth can on average get richer faster than those working for a living. Uh, and it definitely paints a picture of this closed system. Um, but in your retort to his take is that neighborliness isn't just something a Christian should do. It's a reflection of being someone who knows God. And you reference Jeremiah 22, you talk about um, a statement in there and, and your, your comment on that text is that the spe- spe- Spectacular statement does not say that the knowledge of God will lead to care for the poor and needy, nor does it say that the care for the poor and needy will lead to knowledge of God. Rather, it equates the knowledge of God with care for the poor. Most of us wouldn't put that as the same thing. We'd say, if you know God, then you know how to take care of other people. Why do you think it's... It's just an extraordinary statement in Jeremiah. (laughs) that uh, I think it is... I think it is reflective of the prophetic tradition generally, but it is more poignant than any other text I know in arguing that the reality of God consists in justice for the neighbor. It just, it's amazing. I wonder uh, how that ever got written that way, uh, mm-hmm. but, but the text is unambiguous about that. Okay, so what leads us to bifurcate that and to separate those two of, well, I know I love God even if I'm not always the best neighbor to the people around me. Why do you think we've separated those two? Well, I think uh, we, are, we are all seduced into all kinds of uh, dualisms, uh, and uh, we, have a, we have a long tradition of interpreting God as though uh, God were some kind of... Uh, Transcendental, transcendental person in the sky that seems remote from uh, neighborly practice. And uh, uh, I think that Karl Marx's understanding of the word praxis, by which he meant more than practice, but praxis is the, the awareness that uh, truth is does not consist in knowing, but truth consists in doing. And I think that's what Jeremiah is talking about. So you, you find 
the truth of God in doing the truth of God, and doing the truth of God means practicing justice for the neighbor. I, I think this is reflected when Jesus uh, got asked what the great commandment was, uh, he immediately said, you don't get one, you get two, and you have to take them both. You have to love God, you have to love neighbor, and you cannot separate them. So uh, our tendency is uh, to love God and think that uh, love of neighbor is an appendage, or to reverse it and uh, uh, love neighbor and think, well, yeah, we can do a little piety and love God a little. But in fact, they are the same commandment. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what Jesus teaching reflects. You have this line where you say religion is redefined as neighborly economics. Uh, Most of us don't don't think of economics and religion going hand in hand. And if we do, we get really uncomfortable because we we, we create the follow-up question to that being, wait, are you saying we all need to be communists? Um, How how would you respond to that sort of uh, concern with that phrase of religion is redefined as neighborly economics and, oh, does this mean we all have to be communist? Yeah, well, I I wrote a, uh, I published a book last fall called Money and Possessions in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And as I worked on that, I became aware, as I had not been before, uh, how utterly preoccupied the Bible is with economics. Uh, so I don't think that it follows that one has to be a communist or one has to be a socialist or one has to be a capitalist. What one has to be is willing and able to use one's economic resources and one's economic leverage for the sake of the public good. Uh, and uh, that I think that requires uh, a, a mixed uh, economic theory uh, that requires some free market dimensions and requires some government control dimensions and it requires uh, redistribution of wealth dimensions. I think all of those things have to be operative if we start out with the awareness uh, that our vocation is to share our resources for the sake of the common good. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't think uh, that we ought to get seduced into having uh, theoretical discussions about capitalism or communism or socialism. I, I think those are uh, smoke screens uh, that detract us uh, from the real issue of neighborliness. Yeah, I, I agree. And when we talk about different aspects of being a good neighbor in our global community, how to be a good neighbor to those who are you know, across an ocean from us, uh, unfortunately, we are so anemic with simply only having political language to talk about neighborly issues so that when we talk about issues like, well, how, how can we care for the refugee? We only think that's a political issue and we don't see it as a Christian issue. And that becomes the, the political language becomes our native tongue. And That's exactly right. I, th- I think you're right. And I, and I think uh, when you come to those issues that uh, Christians have been uh, timid or embarrassed about our uh, first language about those matters. Yeah. You referenced David Brooks, who, whose quote uh, in the book was that being a Democrat or a Republican becomes their ethnicity. And his language is that political affiliation is now the most potent source of identity. And so we've devalued our religious commitment and we've elevated our political commitment to being our, our, our primary home. 
And so we we can't hear the neighborly conversations without reducing it down to, well, is this, is this left or right? And, and we missed the point. That's right. By the way, since you mentioned David Brooks, in today's New York Times, he has an amazing article arguing that the Exodus narrative is the primal narrative of the American community. And hmm. he shows how that narrative has worked since the earliest Puritans uh, right up until today. And obviously, uh, the Exodus is a narrative of... Uh, of emancipation and justice and, and mm-hmm. all that followed from that. So I'm glad you mentioned the name of David Brooks because uh, I think he is quite on point about that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I am preaching during Lent uh, the Exodus story at my church, and so now I have some more content that I can read and uh, use. So thank you. Yes, indeed. Good. <laughs> this Good. is helping everyone here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, um... Let's go to, um, you referenced this thing uh, earlier where greed and violence leads to death and it, it destroys our, our humanity, our shared humanness. Um, I, I believe it was your son who referenced strain theory, which basic thought uh, is that society needs to communicate clear, constructive goals to its members and then provide them with the means to achieve these objectives. Without such goals, deviant behavior is more likely. And so, uh, it seems, as, as I'm trying to interpret this as a non-sociologist, that we have the American dream that says you work hard, you get what you want, but ultimately that's not always accessible for everyone, and you tie that to the, the idea of crooked scales in the Old Testament. How does the crooked scales tie to our, our broken economic system? Well, I think uh, the, the uh, systemic form of crooked scales consists in uh, uh, bad tax laws, uh, exorbitant interest rates, exploitative credit arrangements, and low wages. Uh, those, those are all uh, strategies whereby we put our hand on the scale and create crook, crooked weights so that some people can't participate in, uh, equitably in the economy. Uh, and the the maddening thing is that that all of those practices of, of uh, low wages, bad tax arrangements, bad mortgage rates, high interest rates—they're all legal. Mm-hmm. But but they they create a, a condition in which society can't function because some are left out before they ever start, and that of course uh, both in. Uh, Deuteronomy and in uh, the prophet Amos, uh, there are uh, strictures against uh, crooked weights, uh, and uh, the crooked the crooked weights are always tilted uh, toward the powerful uh, and against those who are always in the business of playing catch up. Uh, so, as you said earlier about John saying that the, that the wealthy get wealthier quicker. Uh, uh, that's what crooked, crooked weights do. They stack the cards uh, for the people who own the scales against the people who depend on that kind of transaction. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is moving past a, well, I just love God and I want to go to heaven when I die 
sort of religion into realizing that loving God is loving the people around you. And sometimes that means uh, you've got to fix the scale so that it all works, so that we all have a chance to get a piece of the pie. Uh, another theory that you, you tied it to is that crooked scales are not unlike the broken glass theory of crime, which was um, populated a handful of years back. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in, uh, in one of his books uh, and connected to New York City and how crime uh, was cleaned up because they started caring about things like um, graffiti on subways uh, and uh, when they would jump over the, the tolls in the subway booths as well. And these little things made a big difference according to this broken glass theory. How do we see trying to change some of these crooked scales as being able to change not just the little things that helps maybe one person, but the whole, the whole system out? Well, I, I think uh, if, we, if we have a vision of a, of a just society uh, that, that, uh, that creates access points for people who have been left behind, uh, then we can begin to address a variety of political and economic issues that, that run all the way from uh, bad tax law to voter repression. Voter repression is a, is a marvelous example, and gerrymandering are marvelous examples of crooked scales in which the cards are so stacked that many uh, people are left without voice or without leverage. And when you create a political community in which many people are left out because of uh, no voice or no leverage, obviously the laws will become more and more unjust and the cards will be stacked in the courts and everywhere else. And, and therefore, the mobilization of, of uh, political leverage uh, by outsiders and those who have been left behind is utterly indispensable in correcting uh, the skewed political economic system in which we live. And therefore, I, I think that the, 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 the whole matter of community organizing and mobilizing uh, people to have mass and voice in the political process is utterly urgent. So what type of involvement do you see pastors encouraging uh, their congregations to do? Do, do you see congregations feeling like the responsibility to be that politically active where some feel like, you know, it's politics, it's not our world, we're supposed to do church stuff and that's politics and we don't need to get in the midst of it, in the midst of well, it? I, I, think, I think pastors have to help congregations see that all of our good charity work like soup kitchens and tutoring programs have very little impact. I mean, it's all right, but we use much energy on that kind of stuff. So what what pastors and congregations have to do is not try to develop their own programs, but to sign on for community-wide programs uh, of, uh, of community organizing. I am, I am connected to one community organizing outfit, and their mantra is 52 and 1. And what they mean by that is people can go to church 52 Sundays a year, one time a year, all the pastors and all the congregations are to show up together at City Hall in a critical mass around one issue. Because what we know is that if we produce a critical mass at City Hall 
things will change. Mm -hmm. So, so what pastors have to work on is to help church members see that that kind of participation in the political process on behalf of the left behind is a matter of Christian discipleship. Mm-hmm. And that's mm. very upstream because people love to do charity work because it doesn't change anything. Mm. But it makes you, when you do charity work, you, you feel good about yourself, you're helping one person, but it doesn't make a big, massive difference. That's, that's correct. Th- and and, and, and I, have, I have no objection to charity work. I mean, some of that is important. It, it keeps people from going hungry and so. But it's but it's not adequate. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, you- what pastors have to do is to help people see how gospel faith pertains to public issues. Yeah. Now, the only thing I would have an issue with with this 52 and one thing is the assumption that people actually go to church all 52 weeks well i, I get that so what do you think we ought to say 24 and one yeah i think i think a, yeah i think 24 26 and one might be might be yeah. more appropriate. I, I agree with you <laughs> okay yeah. well, one one thing that i did find fascinating that your your son referenced um, organizations that have the highest trust in America by, uh, this is a Gallup poll from 2015, that the highest trust was in organized religion, then the medical system, then the Supreme Court, then the U.S. presidency. I was very encouraged to hear how high organized religion was in the overall trust that uh, uh, the American people had in us. That's right, particularly when you think about the, uh, the re- scandals in the church and all oh. that kind of stuff. But when, uh, were you surprised ahead. by that number? Did you expect it to be that, like, to be that I high? Was, yes, I was surprised by that mm-hmm. because I think uh, uh, lots of people have the impression that the that the, the church is a, is itself a greed system and and all that. So yeah, you're right. I think that's very heartening uh, to yep. get that kind of data. Yep. So. In the highest to lowest trust, organized religion, then the medical system, then the Supreme Court. The fourth was the U.S. presidency. Now, in the book, um, one of the sections that probably is going to get you understood as a prophet is the term that you, I don't know if it was you or your son, but here's an exact quote uh, in which you describe our current president. You say, as the great defiler Donald Trump observes, there's something very seductive about being a television star. When you get the phrase, the great defiler before Donald Trump's name, that's, I think when people are going to start thinking that's a very prophetic thing to say. Was that you or your son who came up with the, uh, that, that moniker? I John. I don't, I don't think, I, I don't mind saying it, but I don't think I said it. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but, we'll just... but, but what, what Donald Trump does is to, uh, is to skew uh, the kinds of practices that make neighborly life possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest he's, not of that the, he's, he's not the only one, but he is certainly out front about it. You know, I think when when people make it out as a Trump is, you know, the Antichrist, I, I feel uncomfortable because I feel like in a lot of ways he's the 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 caricature, the personification of the American ethos. Like he embodies what is in all of us. It's not that he's different from everyone. It's a, that it's just more magnified. We all have. I, I think that's right. I think that's right, and he, he, what people readily say is, we get the president we deserve, and yeah. that's all we got. Yep. Well, I have a, a good friend of mine from Australia, 
And uh, he, he very frequently reminds me of that, um, about uh, that we deserve Donald Trump. So, yep. Okay, yep. okay the, the rest of the quote is, uh, the unfiltered claims of those trafficking in highly measurable assets such as money, property, and attention trump the fuzzy human values of relationships, morality, and meaning. So when we focus on these things, money, property, attention, we lose basically the ability to be neighbors. Correct. That is right. So yep. how would you redeem that? Like, how would you try to turn the table? What is the, uh, the prophetic voice of the church to a community like that, where we've, we've valued well, all the things I, that don't I, matter? I think we have, to, we have to keep, we have to help people critically reflect on what is it that makes human life possible and what is it that makes human life satisfying. And I think that maybe the, 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 a good question to start with is, what do you hope for at the moment you die? And the answer is, I hope I am surrounded by people who love me. I do not hope that I have three cars and a golden chalice. I do not hope for things. I do not hope for power. I do not hope for control. I hope for neighborly affection. Well, if I hope for that at the moment of my death, isn't it true that that's my real hope all the time if I am honest and know myself? Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah. that's the question we have to pose. Yep. That, I mean, that's such a great question. Start with the yeah. end. What, like, what do you want to be surrounded with on your deathbed? And it puts everything in perspective. It does. In, uh, in, in that section of the book in which you're re- responding to the authority versus um, submersion, uh, excuse me, subversion, uh, moral foundation, y- you tie it to the story of Job. And in the story of Job, you, you, you tie it to the behemoth. And it, the quote at the end of that section is, in the end, the book of Job does not look back, it looks forward. It looks forward to this emancipated human creature who now along with the behemoth is to be generative of newness with fierce trust. So how, how is the story of Job a, a, a story that can give us a model for where we're to go or what we can look like? Well, I think that what, what had to happen to Job is that he had to get out of the bargaining system in which he was caught as most of us are caught. So for for 31 chapters, he is bargaining with God. I've been good, therefore you owe me this. And what, and what the whirlwind speeches show to Job is that is no adequate frame of reference for your life. The adequate frame of reference is that your life is grounded in a mystery that is deep and big, and you need to let your life float in the midst of that great mystery. And when Job comes to that awareness at the, in the chapter 42, uh, what, what then happens is that his life is turned back to well-being. And I, I think that... that uh, Donald Trump uh, is a, a, a perfect example of the bargaining. You know, it's the art of a deal. Well, Job wanted to engage in the art of a deal, 
And what the whirlwind speeches say to him is, there are no deals to be made here. I am the mystery of life, and I invite you to a life of daring freedom. Now go live it. And uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a profound conversion for Job. Um, it, it's a profound conversion for all of us to get to that place, to be that's able to correct. live, to live right. in mystery. But no one likes mystery, and I think that's the temptation for materialism, is that it's something tangible you can hold on to uh, your car keys to three different sets of three different cars. You can hold on to the clothes that you can buy, and you can hold on uh, to, to the money in your hand. But mystery is far less inviting because it asks you to give these things up. Exactly, you got it right. I, I think well, that's it. Yep. Well, okay. Well, put your put your preacher hat on. How do you get people to transition from the tangible material they can hold on to and embrace mystery uh, in your relationship with the divine? Well, there are a lot of people who know more about that than I do, and I'm I'm not a I'm not a practicing pastor, but I think uh, uh, preaching uh, may create an environment that then has to be followed up with lots of pastoral one-on-one and lots of pastoral group work, in which people have opportunities to process. Uh, the kinds of dilemmas uh, in which they find themselves, which we are able to do if we can create safe, honest environments in which to do that. So I don't think that preaching by itself can do that, but I don't think it can happen without good preaching Mm -hmm. because good preaching uh, provides some, some fresh categories through which we may imagine our life differently. Hmm. Uh, And obviously that does not entail uh, the usual moralisms that many people associate with preaching. Uh, Moralisms get us nowhere. Uh, So it really is uh, the emancipation of imagination uh, that lets us uh, dare to imagine beyond the boxes in which we have been nurtured and situated. Yeah. How, how would you define what a moralism is? Well, a moralism is to, to, to try to impose uh, uh, rules of goodness that amount to social control. Hmm. And uh, most of us have had a lot of experience about uh, having that imposed on us and imposing it on others. Yeah. So yeah. W- when when the preacher, when she or he moves to I- imagination, um, what are the, how, how are they doing that? How are we getting from moralisms to imagination to, to create a, a new world, a new vision of what uh, life is intended to be as uh, God desires for it to be? Like, how, well, how I, I, I think we do it through through uh, uh, through textual interpretation. And if we have a hermeneutic of imagination, uh, we're not so tempted to do moralism. Uh, I think that moralism uh, comes out of the preacher's anxiety uh, that I can fix this and I know how to fix this. And we're not fixers. (laughs) Mm. So that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as as a preacher, I know the temptation to want to fix something uh, is very real. 
but I think if if we learn to do the work of becoming at peace with who we are and realizing, um, like Barbara Brown Taylor's great line is, is that we never lose control. We only uh, lose the illusion that we ever had control. That's and, true. That's well said. Right? That's Isn't right. she right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so. Yep. And so w- w- once you lose that, then you just give up and go, I- I- I'm not going to control this thing to begin with. So instead, let me paint a picture of the world that God's calling all of us into. That's correct. That's, such that's a, exactly uh, right. That's exactly that's a, right. Yep. That's, yep. well, um, all right. Well, here, let me tell you something. I love this book. I love that you wrote it uh, with your son. I love the interplay, sociology, theology. Uh, my psychologist father is going to love this conversation, and I'm sure he'll have something to add to this, especially since he is a big fan of the book of Job. Oh, so good. he's going he's to love good. your take on that. That's um, great. That's great. Well, this has been an absolute honor for me to talk to you. When's Can you the, uh, send me a copy of what you produce? Of, of course, I'll shoot you. Uh, I'll send you an email with uh, the link that we. Uh, and I can we, uh, send it on to my son. He'll be very pleased about it. Oh, that'll be a, okay. When's uh, okay? People obviously need to go get this book. The title is "Rebuilding the Foundations." Uh, knowing the prolific uh, pace in which you write, I'm sure you've got something else coming out not too long from now. What's the next this, one? This summer, I have a uh, a book of uh, uh, a daily devotion for the entire church year. Uh, it'll be from uh, Westminster John Ox, and it's entitled uh, Gift and Task. Gift. And okay. as you might imagine, it has 365 pages. <laughs> well, I, I think you're onto something there. That sounds like a good, <laughs> a good deal. Well, good. well, I'll go check that one out when it comes out. But again, Rebuilding the Foundations, you and your son, great work. And uh, again, thanks for talking with me. Thanks to talk to you, Luke. Good to talk to you. Thanks Bye. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.